You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to the Wiley Connect podcast. I'm David Gross, a partner at Wiley's Telecommunications, Media, and Technology Group. We're joined today by Alan Davidson, the administrator for NTIA. We're also joined today by two of my colleagues, Sarah Baxenberg uh, and one of our summer associates, Stephanie Rigatti. Welcome, Alan. Alan Davidson has, for many years, been a key player in the policy debates regarding broadband and ICTs, both inside of government and outside. He is universally respected, and it is universally understood that as NTI administrator, he has one of the most important jobs in government. He is not only the president's chief advisor on telecom issues, but also he is a key point person for ensuring that all Americans have real access to broadband, regardless geography and regardless of their economic circumstances. Once again, Alan, thank you so very much for joining us today. To start our questions, I'm going to turn to Sarah Baxenberg, who has a few questions that she's been dying to ask you. Alan, thanks so much for joining us today. We wanted to start with what's really a marquee issue for NTIA right now, and that's broadband deployment. The bipartisan infrastructure law includes a historic $65 billion investment to ensure that all Americans have access to affordable, reliable, high-speed internet. And 70% of that investment, $45 billion, is allocated to NTIA for the purpose of implementing several broadband infrastructure deployment programs under the umbrella of what NTIA and the administration call Internet for All. Alan, could you talk to us a bit about how NTIA views broadband deployment as a priority generally, and also give us an overview of the Internet for All initiative and what you expect to see from those programs in terms of closing the digital divide? Well, thank you for that question. Let me let me start by saying thank you for inviting me here onto the podcast. Delighted to join you. And also let me start by saying congratulations to Ambassador Gross, who has been recently uh, part of a conferment ceremony at the Embassy of Japan and was awarded the Order of the Rising Sun, if I've got that right. And uh, one of the highest awards, maybe the highest award that can be awarded by the uh, government of Japan to somebody here. And uh, I just want to say congratulations and uh, salute your, your years of service to our community uh, and to the global community in this field. Thank you very much, Alan. Unnecessary, but re- greatly, greatly appreciated. So you you asked about, about Internet for All, and it is, I will just say, a really exciting and historic time to be working on these issues here at NTIA. We have been talking about the, the, digital, the digital divide in this country for over 20 years. And finally, thanks to the bipartisan infrastructure law, as you mentioned, we have been given the resources to really do something historic and meaningful about it. So we are excited to be part of this effort and this mission that has been given to us by the president, uh, by the secretary of commerce to ensure that everyone in America, and that is everyone, has access to high speed, affordable, reliable internet service. Uh, For us, you know, those resources, as you mentioned, are pretty significant. NTIA is being, is at the head of several different major grant programs. We've got a 
$42.5 billion broadband equity access and deployment program, a state grant program that's really focused on deployment. We've got a almost $3 billion digital equity program that's going to address digital inclusion issues and equity. A billion-dollar middle mile program, which will be one of the first programs we really implement and real force multiplier for us in terms of getting deployments out there. And an additional $2 billion that was added to our tribal connectivity program. So all of these together, you know, are a huge effort and coupled with other federal programs that are in place to really work on closing the digital divide. And the last thing I'd say just generally about all of this is, and this is why we're excited, you know, is this is a huge moment for us as a country. Uh, You know, generations before us brought water and electricity to rural America. They built the interstate highway system. This is really our generation's infrastructure moment. This is our chance to connect people so that they can thrive in the modern economy. And we're excited to be part of it. I totally agree. It's so important and so historic an opportunity. And I bet it's really exciting to be at the head of things and to be at the helm. I want to talk a little bit about the importance of the participation by state and tribal governments. NTIA announced recently that every state and territory has signed up to participate in the broadband equity access and deployment program. Is that a big milestone for the agency? Is that something you were expecting, hoping to happen? Great question. So it's huge for us. And the reason to start with is that states are the critical partner for us in implementing these programs. The way the law was written, our major programs, especially the $42 billion state grant program, deployment program, our digital equity programs, they start with grants to the states and then the states do a lot of the grant making and the implementation. So in order to make that work, we need the states to participate. And the first milestone, we released our notices of funding opportunity in May, and that started the shot clock on a deadline for states to apply and send us their letters of intent that they wanted to participate each in the BEAD state grant program and in the digital equity program. And to be honest, you know, we were concerned about whether we would get all of the states. The states are really, they vary widely in terms of their readiness for this. Some states have really sophisticated broadband offices. Some states are just starting their broadband operations. And we knew that it was going to be a challenge for some states to get these applications in, even though we've made them as simple as possible. And I'm very, very pleased to report that we got 100% participation from all of the states and territories, all 56 of the entities who could participate, which was a huge relief to us and a major accomplishment. I will say it took a lot of work, a lot of phone calls from our office. We are 100% subscribed from all the states, and that's a really big deal because it's a strong showing that the states and communities that are going to be critical partners for us in this are all in as well. And we're just very, very glad to see that and a little bit relieved. Yeah, that's fantastic news. And so now looking ahead to what's next, you mentioned that these are grant programs where the money flows to the states and territories, and then they need to do the work of sub-granting funds to infrastructure providers and carriers. So thinking ahead to what's next, what's the role that you see for industry, not just in eventually building the infrastructure and being the recipients of those sub-grants, but in helping states and localities to build these processes and make these programs successful? Because as you mentioned, some states are, you know, standing up broadband offices for the first time. Right. Well, it's a great question, Sarah. And I would say, you know, the starting point here is that we know that 
different states are going to approach this in different ways. And so we built into these programs a fair amount of flexibility for states. And uh, we know it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. The needs of Rhode Island are different than the needs of Montana or Alaska. And so we expect a wide variety of approaches from the states. There are going to be things that states need to do in the near term include putting together their plans that have to be approved by NTIA. And those plans are pretty extensive. They have to show local coordination. They have to have a plan for doing digital equity work. They've got to have a, ultimately, they're going to have to do the grant making once they re- receive their you know allocation and know how much they're going to be giving out. There's going to be an ongoing oversight in all of this. Industry plays a critical role, I think, and the whole stakeholder community, including nonprofit organizations and philanthropy, play a really big role in helping support the states in doing this. And as you indicated, different, and we talked about already, different states are in different, differently situated here, different capacity. They are going to be relying on providers in their communities, the folks who will actually be building these networks for input, for guidance, for understanding. And so I'd say the first and maybe most important thing is to I really encourage providers to engage with the state broadband offices and engage with the communities who need to be part of this planning process. Talk about where there's need. Think about how companies will be able to fill those needs. States are going to be doing a lot of have a lot of flexibility in how they craft these programs. And the smart, smart ones will be engaged with industry to make sure and the broader community to make sure they're building their plans in a way that's that's going to meet the goals that they need to meet, which include 100% connectivity and access. Stepping back from the coordination at the state and local level, I also want to touch on coordination at the federal level. You mentioned this is kind of a historic moment for the country in closing the digital divide, not just because of what NTIA is doing, but because of what other agencies and federal programs are doing as well. And I'm curious, just thinking about the FCC and the amount of institutional knowledge that it has in implementing universal service programs and programs aimed at increasing broadband deployment and connectivity during the pandemic, schools and libraries, a number of programs that the FCC has run for years. Has NTIA sought to leverage that expertise that the FCC has in doing broadband programs? And what has that looked like? It's a, it's a terrific question because we really recognize we need all the help that we can get in many ways. Uh, this is really an all hands on deck moment. And particularly thinking, you know, there are resources in different federal programs and there's expertise in different federal programs. And I think what we've all realized within the leadership at the federal level is we're only going to succeed in this mission, high speed, affordable, reliable internet for everyone. We're only going to, going to succeed if we're all working together. I think $42 billion doesn't go as far as it used to. And we, we really, it's a joke, but it's also true that we'll only succeed if we work together. We've been doing that quite closely, particularly with the FCC. They have a huge amount of expertise in this area. We're working very, very closely with them on mapping issues, which where they've got the lead, but will be very directly important for our program. We're also working really closely with them on affordability. Um, and the ACP, the Affordable Connectivity Program, that the FCC is administering provides a benefit for low-income Americans to support their ability to connect. Critical part of our ability to provide affordable access. We've been looking to that program as we think about how to craft our programs. We're also trying to promote America, uh, use of that program. And so I think it's a good example, and I'd say all of the federal programs out there, we're trying to work together, 
promote each other's programs and also help provide one-stop shopping so that, you know, states and communities that are trying to get grant funding, you know, they don't know the difference between the outside of Washington. Nobody knows the difference between the NTIA and the USDA and the FCC. They just want to know where they can go to get help. And we're trying to make sure that we all work together to give them an answer. An area that's of great interest across the federal government in thinking about broadband connectivity is cybersecurity, in particular ensuring that our nation's infrastructure, including communications infrastructure, is resilient, trusted, not vulnerable to attack by malicious actors. And as you know, this has been a major issue at the FCC, which has its rip and replace program in place for infrastructure that was funded through the FCC's Universal Service Fund that was provided by entities that are now on the FCC's covered list of companies that pose a threat to national security. So I'm really curious, and as you're learning from the FCC about its broadband programs and affordability, have you been thinking at all about national security and cybersecurity as you implement Internet for All and how in particular NTIA can work to ensure that the infrastructure that's built with this funding uh, is resilient? Well, it's really important. And I think, uh, you know, as a starting point, it's part of our job here at NTIA to help to make sure that we're building a better, stronger, more secure Internet. And we're involved in a wide array of efforts, even outside of Internet for All, to make sure that we're you know, supporting a secure, trustworthy, open, and free communications medium around the world. So that's a major goal. And we need to do that both around the world and at home. That informs how we think about implementing these programs. And in our notices around these programs, we've made very specific requirements around cybersecurity, including a requirement that Grant subgrantees, the providers who are building the networks, have to have a cybersecurity risk management framework, you know, that reflects, for example, our NIST's cybersecurity framework. Um, so we've put specific requirements in there. We're also looking to them to make sure they have supply chain risk management plans. Um, and, you know, we're trying to give them resources as well. We have something called the C-Script, which is our communication supply chain risk information partnership, if I've got that right, that's there to help small providers particularly understand security risks. We're working to expand competition in the 5G infrastructure market, and I think we're hopeful that providers will take advantage of those tools as well. But the key thing is we are learning from the experiences that have come before us. We really recognize some of the threats that are out there, and we are going to make sure that the equipment that gets deployed in these federal networks meets the basic requirements and recognizes the global threat structure that's out there right now. And so um, we're, we're very focused on this. Well, thinking about cybersecurity as an issue, as you mentioned, that affects us at home, but is also critical around the world, I think that's the perfect segue into moving into international issues. And I know <laughs> David has a lot of things that he's dying to ask you there as well. Absolutely. Thank you very much. So turning the page a little bit from sure. extraordinarily important issues about domestic broadband, and I will note support of the great work that you and your team are doing in this area, how critically important it is internationally. Uh, the U.S. has always prided itself as being a leader. And one of the issues that we've struggled with for many years is the fact that we have not been able to provide broadband to all Americans in a way that we would suggest is important for the rest of the world. One of the forums for those discussions is the an affiliate of the United Nations called the International Telecommunication Union, based in Geneva. 
It is older than the United Nations and has evolved over the years. And it has, uh, the U.S. has a candidate to head up the ITU, the election being held at the end of this September at the ITU plenipotentiary, uh, a woman by the name of Doreen Bogdan Martin. I know you've been very involved in her candidacy. You and your team have been very involved. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important you know, for America and for Americans? David, it's a great question. Of course, an area where you've been a leader for many years and guiding the U.S. and how we think about these fora. The starting point, of course, is that we need to promote our American Western vision of what communications should look like for the world, free, open, secure, private communications, industry-led standards. And the the bodies where we do this are incredibly important for making sure that we are building our communications networks, we're building the internet in a way that reflects those values. And so, you know, we ignore those bodies at our peril. We engage with them and have engaged with them over decades with great success. And so I think it's important for us to continue to engage and show that kind of leadership to the world. You know, I think when we don't engage also, we provide opportunities for those with very different worldviews, some of the authoritarian countries out there, to promote a different kind of model for what the internet could look like, for what telecommunications can look like. So the stakes are very high right now in terms of engaging in bodies like the ITU. So it's at this moment and because of that, that we have really engaged heavily in this uh, big meeting that's coming up at the end of September, the plenipotentiary meeting for the ITU. Not a very, it happens every four years, right? It is a sort of singular gathering. And at that meeting, a new secretary general for the ITU will be elected. And we are very keen on the candidacy of Doreen Bogdan-Martin. She has decades of experience at the ITU. She's been a very capable leader there. But most importantly, I think she stands for these important efforts to improve connectivity around the world, to close gaps in infrastructure, to elevate the voices of, of new communities, of, of younger voices, and make you know the IT a more inclusive and sustainable place and make our communications more inclusive and sustainable. So she really reflects those values that we think are important. She would be the first woman to head the ITU in its 150-plus year history, which is kind of amazing and really overdue. So for many reasons, it's a historic pick, it's an important pick, and there is a lot of energy going into her candidacy right now. We're very happy to support that and lead a lot of that out of NTIA here. Well, it's so very important because the organization's important, the leadership is important. For our listeners, it may be important for them to know it's a secret ballot. One country, one vote. The largest countries like China, the United States, get the same number of votes, one, as small island nations and, and others do. So it's a it's a real challenge for you. And I know you've, you've been spending a lot of time on it. Well, you've lived it before. You've seen it. And it's a great point. And we do know this is the system at the ITU. And so you see, you know, regions like Africa and Southeast Asia have a you know, kind of outsized, very important communities. And we've been doing a lot of work of outreach. I'd say, you know, we worry sometimes the other side doesn't necessarily fight fair. But Doreen's got a, is an extremely strong candidate. I think she's really well regarded within the ITU. And so we're cautiously optimistic. And but we're going to take nothing for granted, even in this geopolitical environment, and make sure that we're kind of run through the tape on this one, make sure she gets elected. I'll also note, I know you'd be and 
are extraordinarily strong supporter of Doreen, but the fact that she's an alum of NTIA <laughs> uh, should play some role as well. Uh, well she's, she's proudly an alum of, of your. I should have said that. I should have said that before. She is. She <laughs> is one of our most prestigious alumna now, uh, and I think she did start her early career was spent some portion of it here. I think maybe one of her earliest jobs here in Washington before heading over to the ITU was at NTIA. So we're very proud of her. And I would also say this is a place where we need another all hands on deck moment. You know, it's not just what the US government and our allies are doing to promote her, but also, you know, industry has a role here. And I think civil society as well with some of the countries out there. Will, and so we're hoping that everybody will be, you know, pushing for her at the end of September. Uh, undoubtedly, we are. We go to bed every night praying that this all comes out well. <laughs> I would also note for those who are interested in such things, uh, she started, I believe, at NTA as an intern, and some secretaries of states have started at the Department of State as interns. So it's one more reason why people should always treat interns very, very well. They sometimes turn out to be world leaders. And we're always looking for good interns here at NTIA. So, you know, Send folks our way. Okay, very good. Staying on international and staying a little bit on ITU, later next year, after the plenipotentiary, is the uh, World Radio Communications Conference, which is a meeting of the world to talk about spectrum that happens every three or four years, talk about spectrum, satellite issues, and the like. Can you talk a little bit about NTIA's key role in that process? its role globally, its role with regard to U.S. prep for that, and what's going to be happening next year? Well, so, you know, NTIA has a, an important role on thinking about spectrum, both domestically and internationally. We serve as the manager of federal spectrum and federal spectrum policies, advise the president on spectrum policy. We've been deeply involved on these issues generally, but we in particular in thinking about, as you indicate, for the same reasons that we were talking about the ITU generally, these conferences like the World Radio Communication Conference are very important in terms of setting direction, setting standards, and thinking about the deployment of our next generations of networks. Our Office of Spectrum Management at NTIA has an entire division that is dedicated to developing the U.S., uh, helping to develop anyway, the U.S. international spectrum policy and trying to do it in a way that reflects the interests of our federal users, lots of agencies that use federal spectrum, Defense Department, aviation interests, satellites, climate research. So all of that's really quite important as we think about spectrum policy. In preparation for the next World Radio Conference, number 23, WRC 23 is how people talk about it. Yes, yeah. you're nodding, Dave. That's good. Yeah. That, <laughs> um, that's what it is, WRC 23. It, right. So we, um, we're right now we're completing, you know, a set of proposals for priority agenda items from the federal point of view, reconciling those proposals with some of the ideas that the FCC and has been submitting and thinking to folks like CTEL and uh, the Inter-American proposals that are coming out to think about agenda items. And we've been working very closely with the FCC and the State Department on developing our policies. I don't really have a lot to share about the any of the details yet. It's We're still early on, but it's very much on the radar screen. And it's something that I think folks will be hearing about more. Even we're focused on the ITU plenipot, as we call it, the plenipotentiary this year. But WRC is just around the corner. Yeah, I think maybe to underscore its importance, yeah, every time one of these WRCs is held, and they're held only every three or four years, uh, because uh, it is talking about uh, these fundamental issues about how spectrum should be used globally, 
how satellites should operate uh, globally. Uh, literally tens of billions of dollars of business plans are riding on the outcome of these types of meetings. Industries rise and fall, opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities rise and fall on the outcome of many of these meetings and then how they're implemented domestically in the United States by NTI and the FCC, as well as internationally in countries around the world. Uh, it, yeah, but, no, it, it, I'm sure you've seen it over time, but really to note the importance of these wireless technologies, these, how they've grown in their economic impact and value. Now, of course, we're talking about spectrum, you know, holdings in the federal government and private sector, billions, trillions of dollars worth of economic value at stake and uh, an increasingly scarce resource that's increasingly valuable and important for our competitiveness in our industry, making sure that we have a highly competitive mobile uh, ecosystem. I think all of that is you know, at play here. And so you're, you're right, we'll, we'll be focusing on it quite a bit. And it's been interesting to see how it only becomes more important over time. Indeed. Well, Stephanie's been very nice and been quiet so far, but I know she's got some spectrum-related questions she's dying <laughs> to ask you. Stephanie? Yes, thank you so much. Uh, well, we're very excited to ask you these questions because we know you're excited about this initiative. But the NTIA recently announced that they renegotiated FCC NTIA MOU on spectrum coordination will be drafted by the end of July. So do you have any updates on this draft that you can share with us? Well, I'll just say that, like, first of all, coordination is critically important here. And I know it sometimes sounds a little boring or not that sexy, like, wow, we're going to coordinate. But this is actually one where you can see what happens when we don't we aren't coordinated well. And, you know, we've had some real um, I'd call it maybe miscues is the wrong way to characterize it. But place times when spectrum policy has now shown up on the front pages of the paper, when I look at the conflicts between the aviation industry and the deployment of 5G, there are other examples like that, maybe not as high profile, where we really need to be well coordinated at the federal level. We need to have good lines of communication with the FCC. We need to have really good understanding about how we're going to resolve disputes about interference between different, you know, users of spectrum. And we don't do that at our peril. And from the very beginning of when I took this role, the chairwoman of the FCC and I pledged, we spoke on my very first day in the office, and we really pledged to each other that we were going to do what we could to make sure our organizations were working very closely together. And so you're seeing the fruits of that right now, which is our push to update our memorandum of understanding, which is the a core basis for how we work together on spectrum issues. And I don't have any specific updates for you right now, other than to say we're on track. <laughs> We've got a deadline for ourselves of at least having, you know, an agreed draft done by the end of the month, which will put a shot clock on this, helps us make sure we drive to get our teams to drive to closure on it. And I think we're doing well. So I, I'm confident we'll get there. And this is just part and parcel of a stronger effort across the federal government to be coordinated, to be sharing information. And um, like I say, it, it doesn't always sound like the sexiest thing, but I think it, it actually is the thing that is going to make us most successful in this area if we do it right. Absolutely. It's very important. And I guess for our listeners, we'd be curious, could you give us some insight into that collaboration you mentioned between you know, NTIA and the FCC, you and Chairwoman Rosenworcel? How often do you meet? What are your ultimate goals for the initiative as you launch this effort? Right. So, yeah, right. It's a great question. And the starting point, again, is is how important that collaboration is and that coordination. 
And so we, um, well, I will just say the chairwoman and I talk very regularly, <laughs> uh, which is great. And she has also been, I have to say on a personal note, really incredibly supportive and a huge help for me as I've come into this job. She is so experienced such a capable and strong leader for the FCC. We were lucky to have her there, and she's been a, a wonderful colleague for me. We launched together a few months ago the Spectrum Coordination Initiative, which was an effort to really solidify how we were going to work together. And part of that was updating the MOU, but there's other pieces to it, too, that have been really important. So regular communications, we pledged to meet at least monthly. Let me just say, we're <laughs> we're exceeding that, uh, <laughs> that benchmark. Um, we do have a desire to make sure we're exchanging better technical understanding and technical expertise. So we've done, these are just sort of great confidence building things. We've put, you know, there's NTIA staff who are now part of the FCC advisory committees on Spectrum. Uh, they have sent staff to be part of our advisory committees. You know, these are like, these may seem like small things, but they're actually quite, quite, quite useful for us. And I think the bigger picture thing and the thing that will come next is working on a national spectrum strategy together. And that will be something that we work on with all the federal agencies and the White House. We want to try and bring the uh, private sector into that as well. But I think over the next year, you'll see us really pushing to have a well-articulated strategy for how we think about that approach spectrum issues and continue to replenish the supply of spectrum for private sector use in the future. And that's going to be a very important thing that we work on together. That's interesting. Thank you. Well, I know another topic we want to talk about is privacy, so I'll, I'll hand it over to Sarah again for that. And this Great. is the last topic, Alan, that we wanted to talk with you about today. Um, I know that one thing in the privacy space that NTIA is engaged in this year is a listening tour around privacy, equity, and civil rights. Could you talk a little bit about the agency's priorities there? Well, thank you for the question. And I first, as a starting point, the issues around privacy and data protection remain incredibly important for people in all walks of life in our country around the world and around the world. This is an area where we know we need to make more progress. You know, we do not have a federal baseline privacy statute here. Not a week goes by that there aren't, you know, new issues we see in the, in the papers about the use of data in ways that are unexpected and maybe harmful. And finding ways to balance, uh, make sure that we've got the right balance on privacy is, is going to be really important. A starting point for us at NTIA has been, uh, I just say, by the way, we at NTIA are not the regulator of privacy in America. You know, there are other or parts of the federal government, such as the FTC, that are focused on consumer protection. But we do serve as the president's advisor on telecommunications and information policy. With that hat on, in that role, we try to think about, you know, where are the big policy issues in privacy going? And one area that we've really focused on over the last year has been this issue about how privacy can impact equity and civil, civil rights. rights. We did a listening tour earlier this year at the end of 2021, talked to a lot of stakeholder groups, and I think it's quite clear that the ways that data is used, as much as we talk about the broad impact of um, data usage on, on personal privacy, there are communities, vulnerable communities, communities of color, the elderly who are particularly impacted in negative ways by privacy issues. 
And so I think it became clear to us in talking to a lot of the stakeholder community that we need to do more in this area to uncover where the real harms are and what we could do as a federal government from the policy side uh, to start to address them for the, specifically for these communities. And so uh, we are going to be releasing soon a request for comment. Uh, and we're seeking comment from stakeholders about, about these impacts, the impact of, of privacy, particularly on vulnerable communities and uh, on civil rights. And uh, our hope is that that will then feed into a pol some policy recommendations of paper uh, for uh, for the federal government's consideration. So I think it's an incredibly important area. We need to do so much more in this space. And so we're we're eager to do our part. I can tell something that you're really passionate about. I've actually heard you speak about this issue before um, and have said in interviews that privacy is an area that you feel really personally connected to. Could you speak to that a little bit more? Sure. And I should say, you know, as a starting point, I do think also that the, you know, the, this administration is an administration that cares deeply about privacy. The president has spoken about it. He spoke about it in the State of the Union address, talking about children's privacy. It's addressed in the executive order on competition from last year. You see lots of leaders across our organization, um, across the administration, speaking about uh, the importance of privacy. But I will say, yes, personally, having spent time in civil society myself uh, in the public interest community promoting these issues around uh, in the U.S. around the world, having spent time in industry uh, grappling directly with both, you know, the importance of data for innovation, but the need to protect privacy as well. I think it's incredibly important that we're addressing these issues in a way that really meets the needs of consumers and the American public and also does so in a way that protects innovation. And I think that we need to to do better there, I'll just say. And I see this now in my current role. We've left a leadership gap here, right? The fact that the U.S. does not have, for example, a baseline pri federal privacy law, it's noted by our allies and our not allies around the world. And I think it's hard for us sometimes to be seen as a leader if we can't do the basics of protecting our own consumers uh, uh, from some of the privacy concerns that are out there. So I'm, I am passionate about it. I am hopeful that in our new ro in this role at, at NTIA that we can do more on that. Well, and one place that we're potentially seeing the U.S. government do more is in drafting legislation so that we'll have that baseline federal privacy statute. And I know this summer Congress is working on the bipartisan American Data Privacy and Protection Act. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what NTIA's role has been like, given uh, you know your role in influencing policy and giving input on privacy policy, and how your role might change when we do hopefully finally have uh, federal privacy legislation? As I said, our our role at NTIA is to serve as the president's advisor on telecommunications and information policy by statute. So we serve as an advisor. We're not the regulator, but we do think quite a bit about what policy should look like. We often get asked for technical assistance on legislative measures by folks on Capitol Hill. And so we are thinking quite a bit about this. And as I said, the administration, while it has not issued a public position on any of the particular bills that have gone forward, I think we have been very clear about the need for action to protect personal privacy whether, as I said, it's in the EO on competition from last year, the actions of the Federal Trade Commission, which has been a real leader here, 
the State of the Union address by the president, where he spoke so passionately about children's privacy. And even in more recent weeks, thinking about sort of the legal landscape and how privacy plays into the felt needs of people in the aftermath of some of the recent Supreme Court decisions. In those contexts, you know, I think privacy becomes more and more important. So we're hopeful we can keep contributing to the administration's position on this and that we'll have a, a federal privacy statute in the future. Because I, I will just say that, you know, from, a, from our perspective, uh, a patchwork of state laws is a very difficult way uh, to build a, a digital economy. And I'll just say whether we have that law or not, you know, I think there will continue to be a huge number of privacy issues, privacy policy issues that come up outside of the consumer protection context, but thinking about what should our policies look like when we look at new emerging technologies, machine learning and artificial intelligence, the, the Internet of Things, the rising importance of data in all of our lives. There's going to be a continuing need to address these concerns and the, probably the most interesting thing for all of us is that there are new issues every day <laughs> in this space, and our hope is that NTIA can be a source of a center of excellence in thinking about how technology impacts people and impacts policy and how we can craft policies that really improve the human condition. And so our belief is that these technologies can be technologies that really make people's lives better. Getting the balance right on privacy is going to be an important part of that. Well, thank you very much. That's that's terrific. Uh, I want to thank you so very much, uh, Alan Davidson, Administrator for NTIA. I think our listeners really understand now much better uh, why the country is so lucky to have you at the helm of NTIA, your mastery of this wide variety of complex subjects, how articulate you are in explaining very complicated policy issues, and your mastery of the leadership qualities that are required to bring broadband to all, help on the international side, and help with regard to privacy for Americans are just a few of the things that we should all be thankful to you for doing. But of course, I'm particularly thankful that you spent the time with us to talk to us on Wiley Connect. Thank well, you very, very much. Thank you for having me. And I'll just say this is a real, it is an all hands on deck moment, particularly for our work on uh, getting high speed affordable internet out to everybody. And we really look forward to the partnership with folks like you uh, and your listeners. This is going to be a community barn raising to get internet out to everybody in the country. So we're excited to be part of it and to be thinking about these broader issues too. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create, and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.